Master Humphrey's Clock, Section 4. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Master Humphrey's Clock by Charles Dickens, Section 4. Chapter 3, Part 1. Master Humphrey's Visitor. When I am in a thoughtful mood, I often succeed in diverting the current of some mournful reflections by conjuring up a number of fanciful associations with the objects that surround me, and dwelling upon the scenes and characters they suggest. I have been led by this habit to assign to every room in my house and every old staring portrait on its walls a separate interest of its own. Thus I am persuaded that a stately dame, terrible to behold in her rigid modesty, who hangs above the chimney-piece of my bedroom, is the former lady of the mansion. In the courtyard below is a stone face of surpassing ugliness, which I have somehow, in a kind of jealousy, I am afraid, associated with her husband. Above my study is a little room with ivy peeping through the lattice, from which I bring their daughter, a lovely girl of eighteen or nineteen years of age, and dutiful in all respects save one, that one being her devoted attachment to a young gentleman on the stairs, whose grandmother, degraded to a disused laundry in the garden, piques herself upon an old family quarrel and is the implacable enemy of their love. With such materials as these I work out many a little drama, whose chief merit is that I can bring it to a happy end at will. I have so many of them on hand, that if on my return home one of these evenings I were to find some bluff old white of two centuries ago comfortably seated in my easy-chair, and a lovelorn damsel vainly appealing to his heart, and leaning her white arm upon my clock itself, I verily believe I should only express my surprise that they had kept me waiting so long, and never honoured me with a call before. I was in such a mood as this, sitting in my garden yesterday morning, under the shade of a favourite tree, revelling in all the bloom and brightness about me, and feeling every sense of hope and enjoyment quickened by this most beautiful season of spring, when my meditations were interrupted by the unexpected appearance of my barber at the end of the walk, who I immediately saw was coming towards me with a hasty step that betokened something remarkable. My barber is at all times a very brisk, bustling, active little man, for he is, as it were, chubby all over, without being stout or unwieldy, but yesterday his alacrity was so very uncommon that it quite took me by surprise, for could I fail to observe when he came up to me that his grey eyes were twinkling in a most extraordinary manner, that his little red nose was in an unusual glow, that every line in his round bright face was twisted and curved into an expression of pleased surprise, and that his whole countenance was radiant with glee. I was still more surprised to see my housekeeper, who usually preserves a very staid air, and stands somewhat upon her dignity, peeping round the hedge at the bottom of the walk, and exchanging nods and smiles with the barber, who twice or thrice looked over his shoulder for that purpose. I could conceive no announcement to which these appearances could be the prelude, unless it were that they had married each other that morning. I was, consequently, a little disappointed, when it only came out that there was a gentleman in the house who wished to speak with me. "'And who is it?' said I. The barber 
with his face screwed up still tighter than before, replied that the gentleman would not send his name, but wished to see me. I pondered for a moment, wondering who this visitor might be, and I remarked that he embraced the opportunity of exchanging another nod with the housekeeper, who still lingered in the distance. "'Well,' said I, "'bid the gentleman come here.' This seemed to be the consummation of the barber's hopes, for he turned sharp round and actually ran away. Now my sight is not very good at a distance, and therefore when the gentleman first appeared in the walk I was not quite clear whether he was a stranger to me or otherwise. He was an elderly gentleman, but came tripping along in the pleasantest manner conceivable, avoiding the garden-roller and the borders of the beds with inimitable dexterity, picking his way among the flower-pots and smiling with unspeakable good-humour. Before he was half-way up the walk he began to salute me. Then I thought I knew him. But when he came towards me with his hat in his hand, the sun shining on his bald head, his bland face, his bright spectacles, his fawn-coloured tights, and his black gaiters, then my heart warmed towards him, and I felt quite certain that it was Mr. Pickwick. "'My dear sir,' said that gentleman, as I rose to receive him, "'pray be seated. Pray sit down. Now do not stand on my account. I must insist upon it, really.' With these words Mr. Pickwick gently pressed me down into my seat, and, taking my hand in his, shook it again and again with a warmth of manner perfectly irresistible. I endeavoured to express in my welcome something of that heartiness and pleasure which the sight of him awakened, and made him sit down beside me. All this time he kept alternately releasing my hand and grasping it again, and surveying me through his spectacles with such a beaming countenance as I never till then beheld. "'You knew me directly,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'What a pleasure it is to think that you knew me directly!' I remarked that I had read his adventures very often, and his features were quite familiar to me from the published portraits. As I thought it a good opportunity of adverting to the circumstance, I condoled with him upon the various libels on his character which had found their way into print. Mr. Pickwick shook his head, and for a moment looked very indignant, but smiling again directly, added that no doubt I was acquainted with Cervantes' introduction to the second part of Don Quixote, and that it fully expressed his sentiments on the subject. "'But now,' said Mr. Pickwick, don't you wonder how i found you out i shall never wonder and with your good leave never know said i smiling in my turn it is enough for me that you give me this gratification i have not the least desire that you should tell me by what means i have obtained it you are very kind returned mr pickwick shaking me by the hand again you are so exactly what i expected but for what particular purpose do you think i have sought you out my dear sir now what do you think i have come for mr pickwick put this question as though he were persuaded that it was morally impossible that i could by any means divine the deep purpose of his visit and that it must be hidden from all human ken therefore although i was rejoiced to think that i had anticipated his drift i feigned to be quite ignorant of it and after a brief consideration shook my head despairingly 
"'What should you say?' said Mr. Pickwick, laying the forefinger of his left hand upon my coat-sleeve, and looking at me with his head thrown back, and a little on one side. "'What should you say if I confess that after reading your account of yourself and your little society, I had come here a humble candidate for one of those empty chairs?' "'I should say,' I returned, "'that I know of only one circumstance which could still further endear that little society to me.' and that would be the associating with it my old friend for you must let me call you so my old friend mr pickwick as i made him this answer every feature of mr pickwick's face fused itself into one all-pervading expression of delight after shaking me heartily by both hands at once he patted me gently on the back and then i well understand why coloured up to the eyes and hoped with great earnestness of manner that he had not hurt me if he had i would have been content that he should have repeated the offence a hundred times rather than suppose so but as he had not i had no difficulty in changing the subject by making an inquiry which had been upon my lips twenty times already you have not told me said i anything about sam weller oh sam replied mr pickwick is the same as ever the same true faithful friend that he ever was what should i tell you about sam my dear sir except that he is more indispensable to my happiness and comfort every day of my life and mr weller senior said i old mr weller returned mr pickwick is in no respect more altered than sam unless it be that he is a little more opinionated than he was formerly and perhaps at times more talkative he spends a good deal of his time now in our neighbourhood and has so constituted himself a part of my bodyguard that when i ask permission for sam to have a seat in your kitchen on clock nights supposing your three friends think me worthy to fill one of the chairs i am afraid i must often include mr weller too i very readily pledged myself to give both sam and his father a free admission to my house at all hours and seasons and this point settled we fell into a lengthy conversation which was carried on with as little reserve on both sides as if we had been intimate friends from our youth and which conveyed to me the comfortable assurance that mr pickwick's buoyancy of spirit and indeed all his old cheerful characteristics were wholly unimpaired as he had spoken of the consent of my friends as being yet in abeyance i repeatedly assured him that his proposal was certain to receive their most joyful sanction and several times entreated that he would give me leave to introduce him to jack redburn and mr miles who were near at hand without further ceremony to this proposal however mr pickwick's delicacy would by no means allow him to accede for he urged that his eligibility must be formally discussed and that until this had been done he could not think of obtruding himself further the utmost i could obtain from him was a promise that he would attend upon our next night of meeting that i might have the pleasure of presenting him immediately on his election mr pickwick having with many blushes placed in my hands a small roll of paper which he termed his qualifications put a great many questions to me touching my friends and particularly jack redburn whom he repeatedly termed a fine fellow and in whose favour i could see he was strongly predisposed when i had satisfied him on these points i took him up into my room that he might make acquaintance with the old chamber which is our place of meeting and this said mr pickwick stopping short is the clock dear me and this is really the old clock 
I thought he would never have come away from it. After advancing towards it softly, and laying his hand upon it with as much respect and as many smiling looks as if it were alive, he set himself to consider it in every possible direction, now mounting on a chair to look at the top, now going down upon his knees to examine the bottom, now surveying the sides with his spectacles almost touching the case, and now trying to peep between it and the wall to get a slight view of the back then he would retire a pace or two and look up at the dial to see it go and then draw near again and stand with his head on one side to hear it tick never failing to glance towards me at intervals of a few seconds each and nod his head with such complacent gratification as i am quite unable to describe his admiration was not confined to the clock either but extended itself to every article in the room and really when he had gone through them every one and at last sat himself down in all the six chairs one after another to try how they felt i never saw such a picture of good humour and happiness as he presented from the top of his shining head down to the very last button of his gaiters I should have been well pleased, and should have had the utmost enjoyment of his company, if he had remained with me all day, but my favourite striking the hour reminded him that he must take his leave. I could not forbear telling him once more how glad he had made me, and we shook hands all the way downstairs. We had no sooner arrived in the hall than my housekeeper, gliding out of her little room—she had changed her gown and cap, I observed—greeted Mr. Pickwick with her best smile and courtesy, and the barber, feigning to be accidentally passing on his way out, made him a vast number of bows. When the housekeeper courtesied, Mr. Pickwick bowed with the utmost politeness and when he bowed the housekeeper courtesied again between the housekeeper and the barber i should say that mr pickwick faced about and bowed with undiminished affability fifty times at least i saw him to the door an omnibus was at that moment passing the corner of the lane which mr pickwick hailed and ran after with extraordinary nimbleness when he had got about half-way he turned his head and seeing that i was still looking after him and that i waved my hand stopped evidently irresolute whether to come back and shake hands again or to go on the man behind the omnibus shouted and mr pickwick ran a little way towards him then he looked round at me and ran a little way back again then there was another shout and he turned round once more and ran the other way after several of these vibrations the man settled the question by taking mr pickwick by the arm and putting him into the carriage but his last action was to let down the window and wave his hat to me as it drove off. I lost no time in opening the parcel he had left with me. The following were its contents. Mr. Pickwick's Tale A good many years have passed away since old John Podgers lived in the town of Windsor, where he was born and where in the course of time he came to be comfortably and snugly buried you may be sure that in the time of king james i windsor was a very quaint queer old town and you may take it upon my authority that john podgers was a very quaint queer old fellow consequently he and windsor fitted each other to a nicety and seldom parted company even for half a day john podgers was broad sturdy dutch-built short and a very hard eater as men of his figure often are 
Being a hard sleeper likewise, he divided his time pretty equally between these two recreations, always falling asleep when he had done eating, and always taking another turn at the trencher when he had done sleeping, by which means he grew more corpulent and more drowsy every day of his life. Indeed, it used to be currently reported that when he sauntered up and down the sunny side of the street before dinner, as he never failed to do in fair weather, he enjoyed his soundest nap. But many people held this to be a fiction, as he had several times been seen to look after fat oxen on market-days, and had even be heard by persons of good credit and reputation to chuckle at the sight, and say to himself with great glee, "'Live beef! Live beef!' It was upon this evidence that the wisest people in Windsor, beginning with the local authorities, of course, held that John Podgers was a man of strong, sound sense, not what is called smart, perhaps, and it might be of a rather lazy and apoplectic turn, but still a man of solid parts, and one who meant much more than he cared to show. This impression was confirmed by a very dignified way he had of shaking his head and imparting at the same time a pendulous motion to his double chin. In short, he passed for one of those people who, being plunged into the Thames, would make no vain efforts to set it afire, but would straightway flop down to the bottom with a deal of gravity, and be highly respected in consequence by all good men." being well to do in the world and a peaceful widower having a great appetite which as he could afford to gratify it was a luxury and no inconvenience and a power of going to sleep which as he had no occasion to keep awake was a most enviable faculty you will readily suppose that john podgers was a happy man but appearances are often deceptive when they least seem so, and the truth is that, notwithstanding his extreme sleekness, he was rendered uneasy in his mind and exceedingly uncomfortable by a constant apprehension that beset him night and day. You know very well that in those times there flourished divers evil old women who, under the name of witches, spread great disorder through the land, and inflicted various dismal tortures upon Christian men, sticking pins and needles into them when they least expected it, and causing them to walk in the air with their feet upwards, to the great terror of their wives and families, who were naturally very much disconcerted when the master of the house unexpectedly came home, knocking at the door with his heels, and combing his hair on the scraper. These were their commonest pranks, but they every day played a hundred others, of which none was less objectionable, and many were much more so, being improper besides. The result was that vengeance was denounced against all old women, with whom even the king himself had no sympathy, as he certainly ought to have had, for with his own most gracious hand he penned a most gracious consignment of them to everlasting wrath, and devised most gracious means for their confusion and slaughter, in virtue whereof scarcely a day passed but one which at the least was most graciously hanged, drowned, or roasted in some part of his dominions. Still the press teemed with strange and terrible news from the north or the south or the east or the west, relative to witches and their unhappy victims in some corner of the country, and the public's hair stood on end to that degree that it lifted its hat off its head and made its face pale with terror. 
you may believe that the little town of Windsor did not escape the general contagion. The inhabitants boiled a witch on the king's birthday, and sent a bottle of the broth to court, with a dutiful address expressive of their loyalty. The king, being rather frightened by the present, piously bestowed it upon the Archbishop of Canterbury, and returned an answer to the address, wherein he gave them golden rules for discovering witches, and laid great stress upon certain protecting charms, and especially horseshoes. Immediately the townspeople went to work nailing up horseshoes over every door, and so many anxious parents apprenticed their children to farriers to keep them out of harm's way, that it became quite a genteel trade, and flourished exceedingly. In the midst of all this bustle, John Podgers ate and slept as usual, but shook his head a great deal oftener than was his custom, and was observed to look at the oxen less and at the old women more. He had a little shelf put up in his sitting-room, whereon was displayed, in a row which grew longer every week, all the witchcraft literature of the time. He grew learned in charms and exorcisms, hinted at certain questionable females on broomsticks whom he had seen from his chamber-window riding in the air at night, and was in constant terror of being bewitched at length from perpetually dwelling upon this one idea which being alone in his head had all its own way the fear of witches became the single passion of his life he who up to that time had never known what it was to dream began to have visions of witches whenever he fell asleep waking they were incessantly present to his imagination likewise and sleeping or waking he had not a moment's peace he began to set witch-traps in the highway and was often seen lying in wait round the corner for hours together to watch their effect these engines were of simple construction usually consisting of two straws disposed in the form of a cross or a piece of a bible cover with a pinch of salt upon it but they were infallible, and if an old woman chanced to stumble over them, as not unfrequently happened, the chosen spot being a broken and stony place, John started from a doze, pounced out upon her, and hung round her neck till assistance arrived, when she was immediately carried away and drowned. By dint of constantly inveigling old ladies and disposing of them in this summary manner, he acquired the reputation of a great public character and as he received no harm in these pursuits beyond a scratched face or so, he came in the course of time to be considered witch-proof. There was but one person who entertained the least doubt of John Podger's gifts, and that person was his own nephew, a wild, roving young fellow of twenty who had been brought up in his uncle's house and lived there still, that is to say when he was at home, which was not as often as it might have been. As he was an apt scholar, it was he who read aloud every fresh piece of strange and terrible intelligence that John Podgers bought, and this he always did of an evening in the little porch in front of the house, round which the neighbours would flock in crowds to hear the direful news, for people like to be frightened, and when they can be frightened for nothing at another man's expense, they like it all the better. One fine midsummer evening, a group of persons were gathered in this place, listening intently to Will Marks, that was the nephew's name, as with his cap very much on one side, his arm coiled slyly round the waist of a pretty girl who sat beside him, and his face screwed into a comical expression intended to represent extreme gravity, he read, with heaven knows how much embellishments of his own, a dismal account 
of a gentleman down in Northamptonshire, under the influence of witchcraft, and taken forcible possession of by the devil, who was playing his very self with him. John Podgers, in a high sugar-loaf hat and short cloak, filled the opposite seat, and surveyed the auditory with a look of mingled pride and horror very edifying to see, while the hearers, with their heads thrust forward and their mouths open, listened and trembled, and hoped there was a great deal more to come. Sometimes Will stopped for an instant to look round upon his eager audience, and then, with a more comical expression of face than before, and a settling of himself comfortably, which included a squeeze of the young lady before mentioned, he launched into some new wonder surpassing all the others. The setting sun shed his last golden rays upon this little party, who, absorbed in their present occupation, took no heed of the approach of night, or the glory in which the day went down, when the sound of a horse approaching at a good round trot invaded the silence of the hour, caused the reader to make a sudden stop, and the listeners to raise their heads in wonder. Nor was their wonder diminished when a horseman dashed up to the porch, and abruptly checking his steed, inquired where one John Podgers dwelt. "'Here!' cried a dozen voices, while a dozen hands pointed out sturdy John, still basking in the terrors of the pamphlet. The rider, giving his bridle to one of those who surrounded him, dismounted, and approached John, hat in hand, but with great haste. "'Whence come ye?' asked John. "'From Kingston, master.' and wherefore on most pressing business of what nature witchcraft witchcraft everybody looked aghast at the breathless messenger and the breathless messenger looked equally aghast at everybody except will marks who finding himself unobserved not only squeezed the young lady again but kissed her twice surely he must have been bewitching himself or he never could have done it and the young lady too or she never would have let him "'Witchcraft!' cried Will, drowning the sound of his last kiss, which was rather a loud one. The messenger turned towards him, and, with a frown, repeated the word more solemnly than before, and then told his errand, which was, in brief, that the people of Kingston had been greatly terrified for some nights past by hideous revels, held by witches beneath the gibbet within a mile of the town, and related and opposed to by chance wayfarers who had passed within earshot of the spot.' that the sound of their voices in their wild orgies had been plainly heard by many persons, that three old women laboured under strong suspicion, and that precedents had been consulted and solemn counsel had, and it was found that to identify the hag some single person must watch upon the spot alone, that no single person had the courage to perform the task, and that he had been dispatched express to solicit John Podgers to undertake it that very night, as being a man of great renown, who bore a charmed life, and was proof against unholy spells. John received this communication with much composure, and said in a few words that it would have afforded him inexpressible pleasure to do the Kingston people so slight a service, if it were not for his unfortunate propensity to fall asleep, which no man regretted more than himself upon the present occasion, but which quite settled the question. Nevertheless, he said, there was a gentleman present, and here he looked very hard at a tall farrier, who, having been engaged all his life in the manufacture of horseshoes, must be quite invulnerable to the power of witches, and who, he had no doubt, from his own reputation for bravery and good nature, would readily accept the commission. 
the farrier politely thanked him for his good opinion which it would always be his study to deserve but added that with regard to the present little matter he couldn't think of it on any account as his departing on such an errand would certainly occasion the instant death of his wife to whom as they all knew he was tenderly attached now so far from this circumstance being notorious everybody had suspected the reverse as the farrier was in the habit of beating his lady rather more than tender husbands usually do all the married men present however applauded his resolution with great vehemence and one and all declared that they would stop at home and die if needful which happily it was not in defence of their lawful partners this burst of enthusiasm over they began to look as by one consent towards will marks who with his cap more on one side than ever sat watching the proceedings with extraordinary unconcern he had never been heard openly to express his disbelief in witches but had often cut such jokes at their expense as left it to be inferred publicly stating on several occasions that he considered a broomstick an inconvenient charger and one especially unsuited to the dignity of the female character and indulging in other free remarks of the same tendency to the great amusement of his wild companions as they looked at will they began to whisper and murmur among themselves and at length one man cried why don't you ask will marks as this was what everybody had been thinking of they all took up the word and cried in concert ah why don't you ask will he don't care said the farrier not he added another voice in the crowd he don't believe in it you know sneered a little man with a yellow face and a taunting nose and chin which he thrust out from under the arm of a long man before him besides said a red-faced gentleman with a gruff voice he's a single man that's the point said the farrier and all the married men murmured ah that was it and they only wished that they were single themselves they would show him what spirit was very soon the messenger looked towards will marks beseechingly it will be a wet night friend and my grey nag is tired after yesterday's work here there was a general titter but resumed will looking about him with a smile if nobody else puts in a better claim to go for the credit of the town i am your man and i would be if i had to go afoot in five minutes i shall be in the saddle unless i am depriving any worthy gentleman here of the honour of the adventure which i wouldn't do for the world but here arose a double difficulty for not only did john podgers combat the resolution with all the words he had which were not many but the young lady combated it too with all the tears she had which were very many indeed will however being inflexible parried his uncle's objections with a joke and coaxed the young lady into a smile in three short whispers as it was plain that he set his mind upon it and would go john podgers offered him a few first-rate charms out of his own pocket which he dutifully declined to accept and the young lady gave him a kiss which he also returned you see what a rare thing it is to be married said will and how careful and considerate all these husbands are there's not a man among them but has his heart in leaping to forestall me in this adventure and yet a strong sense of duty keeps him back the husbands in this one little town are a pattern to the world and so must the wives be too for that matter or they could never boast half the influence they have waiting for no reply to this sarcasm he snapped his finger and withdrew into the house and thence into the stable while some busied themselves in refreshing the messenger and others in baiting his steed in less than the specified time he returned by another way with a good cloak hanging over his arm a good sword girded by his side and leading his good horse caparisoned for the journey 
"'Now,' said Will, leaping into the saddle at a bound, "'up and away, upon your metal, friend, and push on. Good night.' He kissed his hand to the girl, nodded to his drowsy uncle, waved his cap to the rest, and off they flew pell-mell, as if all the witches in England were in their horses' legs. They were out of sight in a minute. The men who were left behind shook their heads doubtfully, stroking their chins, and shook their heads again. The farrier said that certainly Will Marks was a good horseman. Nobody should ever say he denied that. But he was rash, very rash, and there was no telling what the end of it might be. What did he go for? That was what he wanted to know. He wished the young fellow no harm, but why did he go? Everybody echoed these words and shook their heads again, having done which they wished John Podgers good night and straggled home to bed. The Kingston people were in their first sleep when Will Marks and his conductor rode through the town and up to the door of a house where sundry grave functionaries were assembled, anxiously expecting the arrival of the renowned Podgers. They were a little disappointed to find a gay young man in his place, but they put the best face upon the matter and gave him full instructions how he was to conceal himself behind the gibbet, and watch and listen to the witches, and how at a certain time he was to burst forth and cut and slash among them vigorously, so that the suspected parties might be found bleeding in their beds next day, and thoroughly confounded. They gave him a great quantity of wholesome advice besides, and, which was more to the purpose with Will, a good supper. All these things being done at midnight nearly come, they sallied forth to show him the spot where he was to keep his dreary vigil. The night was by this time dark and threatening. There was a rumble of distant thunder, and a low sighing of wind among the trees which was very dismal. The potentates of the town kept so uncommonly close to Will that they trod upon his toes or stumbled against his ankles, or nearly tripped up his heels at every step he took and besides these annoyances their teeth chattered so with fear that he seemed to be accompanied by a dirge of castanets at last they made a halt at the opening of a lonely desolate space and pointing to a black object at some distance asked will if he saw that yonder yes he replied what then informing him abruptly that it was the gibbet where he was to watch they wished him good night in an extremely friendly manner and ran back as fast as their feet would carry them Will walked boldly to the gibbet, and glancing upwards when he came under it, saw, certainly with satisfaction, that it was empty, and that nothing dangled from the top but some iron chains, which swung mournfully to and fro as they were moved by the breeze. After a careful survey of every quarter, he determined to take his station with his face towards the town, both because that would place him with his back to the wind, and because if any trick or surprise were attempted, it would probably come from that direction in the first instance. Having taken these precautions, he wrapped his cloak about him so that it left the handle of his sword free and ready to his hand, and leaning against the gallows-tree with his cap not quite so much on one side as it had been before, took up his position for the night. End of section 4